Well, y'all, we have, we have hit, we have passed the halfway mark in our study of James. Um, and this week I did the James challenge. And if you haven't done the James challenge, I encourage you to do it. Go on our website, uh, website sign up. Um, it is the easiest daily Bible reading you will, you will ever do. You'll get an email every day with a chapter. Um, and it's, it's just, it was awesome. It was awesome to be a part of that. I encourage you, if you haven't done it, we still have a few more weeks in James. Sign up for a week and, and take the challenge. Um, but anyways, as I was doing the challenge this week, what stood out to me was, um, was how repetitive James felt to me. Like when I, when I got to the second half of the letter, I found myself saying, didn't I just, didn't I just read that? Didn't he, didn't he just say that? And really in the last two chapters of James, he talks about suffering and patience again. He talks about how we use our words. He talks about the dangers of wealth. He talks about justice and prayer and how you and I are supposed to live out our faith. So it's almost as if the first half of the letter, James is just trying to expose in us all the ways we've got it wrong. And then he did. I don't know. I mean, if you've, if you've read the first three chapters or if you've been here through this process, like every week it feels like, oh man, I do that wrong and I do that wrong. So it's like the first, the first half of the letter is him saying, all right, let me show you all the ways in which you're living wrong. And then in the second half, it's like he's applying what he's just exposed in us to show us how that affects the greater community. In these last two chapters, James is essentially painting a picture of what a Christ-centered community should look like and what it shouldn't look like. Now, don't you want to be a, a group of people who, who are all about forgiveness, who are all about accepting one another, who are all about building each other up? Don't you want to be a part of a group of people who won't easily let each other wreck their lives? Don't you want to be a group of people um, that really desires for each and every one of us to live fully into what God had in mind when he thought us up? That's really the picture that James is trying to paint for us in the second half of this letter. This picture of what a true Christ-centered community looks like. And so in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to look and see the importance of a community built by grace. And we're going to see the, the, the barriers that get in the way of us experiencing that kind of community. And then lastly, we'll look at some ways that James tells us that we can be a part of building that kind of community. So let's look together at our text for today. I'm going to actually start reading in the verse that we ended last week with. James 3, verse 18, and then I'm going to read through, the, through chapter 4, verse 12. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it's printed on your bulletin. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Now, y'all, that was, that was a lot. Uh, that, that was way more than one sermon can cover. So rather than try to attack and tackle every single thing that James brings up in this passage, I want us to take a step back. I want us to take a step back and try to get a sense of the overall picture that he's painting with this passage. What a, what, what a community of grace looks like. And again, if you haven't done the James Challenge, Sign up for the James Challenge and then dig into each of these verses. But for, for now, we're going to step back. What is the overall thing that James is trying to communicate to us? The reason I started with the last verse of chapter 3 is because it sets up the importance of a community of grace. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now the word righteousness has a range of meanings in the Bible. It can mean to be put right with God, which in that case, it's synonymous with justification. And we, we looked at depth uh, about that when we studied James 2 and talked about faith and works and, and how those play together. But there's a righteousness that also has to do with our relationships to each other. Remember, we belong to each other. I had an Old, old Testament professor in seminary, Bruce Walkey, who um, who define righteousness in the Old Testament, especially when the word righteousness appears in the Proverbs. And, and many people think James had the book of Proverbs in mind as he wrote this letter. He defined the word righteousness as this, disadvantaging oneself for the sake of other. To be righteous is to be one who disadvantages himself or herself for the sake of others. And James refers to that as being the crop that's produced, a crop of people who disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. But a crop doesn't just exist, right? It doesn't just appear one day. A crop needs seed. And James says the seed is peacemaking. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And this isn't just communicating this idea of peacemaking between two individuals, but, but it has a communal meaning to it. it. It means that there's a peacemaking that leads to oneness, to a harmonious community, to a community that's built by grace. Now stay with me. In order to become a righteous person, we first need to be involved in peacemaking, which is not an individual effort, but a community thing. You and I, we cannot become righteous in the sense of, of, of our relationship to each other apart from each other, apart from community. In the Gospel of John, right before Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus prays this to his Father. John 17, 21 says this, Father, may they, meaning us, be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete oneness 
that the world might know that you sent me. Jesus is praying that the rest of the people in the world would know who he is by us, by us being us. Jesus says the main way others will know that he indeed is who he claimed to be is how you and I love each other, how deeply affectionate we are towards one another, by how we are people who disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others, a community of grace. So I want to ask, like, how do you think we're doing? Like, how are we doing as a community, but, but also how are you doing individually? Would you be able to characterize your life as being one that disadvantages yourself for the sake of others? I hate that I always tend to bring up politics because I really, I, it makes me so uncomfortable. But as I was thinking about this, it seems like that it, at this time, in our place in history, that is one place where we could look very different from the rest of the world. If we can love each other, even if we have views that are on the other side of the aisles, if we can listen to one another without, um, without seeking to, uh, to, to, to change someone else's mind, but, but listening in a way that says, I'm open to being persuaded by you. If we can listen in such a way that says, I'm, I'm gonna listen to you even if you don't listen back to me the world's going to notice that because I don't see that happening in politics at all right now, especially not on Facebook and Twitter. But if we, if we engaged in that kind of community and that kind of relationship, the world will take notice of that. Like I asked at the beginning, don't you want to be part of a group of people committed to grace? What do you need to do to become that person? What do you need to do right now in your life to become a person of grace? We live in one of the most individualistic societies in the entire human history. We have been taught from the time we are so little that we can be anything we want to be. We can choose to be anything we want. But no matter how much we name it and claim it, we are still basically the product of our family or our culture. As much as you said you weren't gonna be like your mother when you grew up, you are, right? Like we just are. Our beliefs and our behaviors are much more a product of relationships than rationality. We may choose rationally to be something different, but let's be honest with ourselves. We aren't very different from the family we grew up in or the culture we grew up in or the community that we've chosen to be a part of. So the reason it's so important that you and I are part of a community of grace is that's how we become people of grace. We can't just decide that. We've got to be a part of a community of that. I've been here four years and, um, and I love it. I, I mean, this, is, this has been an amazing four years for me and my family. Uh, God has done so much in my own heart um, through this place and you all in this community. And one of the things that I love best about my job is that I often get to hear how this place is changing people's lives, how the community here is changing people's lives. But you know, lives aren't changed on Sundays. They aren't changed by what we're doing right now. Now, hopefully there's conviction 
that leads to change. And hopefully there's some inspiration that might lead to change. Hopefully there is, is times of, of awe at God and his unconditional love that will lead to change. But this experience that we're all having, having right now isn't change. Change only happens in the context of community. Change happens when we honor one another when we bear with one another, when we accept one another, when we forgive one another, when we confess to one another. And we're not doing that right now. Like you can't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how convicted or inspired or in awe you are in this moment right now. You can't do that. Romans 12, 9 essentially says, stop being fake with one another. You can't do that right now. In fact, for some of us, this is the most dishonest we are all week. This, this little hour. And I hate that. I hate uh, because, because we want this to be a place where people can come and feel welcomed and not feel like they have to wear a mask. Uh, but in reality, the truth is, a lot of us, when we step into a church, we immediately feel pressure to pretend. But it's in the context of community that we can begin to get a sense of safety and feeling loved. And we can begin to take off the mask, maybe really slowly, but it's in the context of community that once that mask comes off, we discover that we were still wanted. When our founding, one of our founding pastors resigned five years ago, um, this church, and some of you were here then, uh, was in a, a ton of pain. What, what sustained the church through that? Of course, God. God sustained the church through that. But I, let me tell you, it wasn't the preaching. And Jim did awesome. I, I know because for those six months that Jim preached, um, I sat in the back on a Thursday night and just soaked it all in. And it wasn't the worship. Even though I know that the people who are planning the worship services plan such thoughtful worship service, even in the midst of great pain and hurt on their own. And it wasn't through the leadership. I mean, John did an incredible job of being humble and opening himself up to accusations and, and just taking it and responding as best he could. But none of that is what sustained this church. It was you. It was. What held this church together was you. It was the people who are deeply connected in community here. Our Summit Connect groups are what held this church together during its darkest times. And we've had a lot of people leave uh, since Isaac's resignation. But you know who stayed? The people who were in connect groups. The people who were invested deeply here. Why? Because that's where change happens. That's where the harvest happens. Because in order for us to become people of righteousness, we have to be in peacemaking communities. And it's a community effort. It's a place where you have to honor one another and stick by one another and forgive one another and confess to one another and stop being fake with one another. You and I, we can't become righteous without community. And listen, if, if the main way you experience Summit is through the worship service, it might make you feel better, but you won't get better. You don't get better by coming to church. Now, the worship service is designed to reorient our hearts towards God, but it takes community to change them. It takes community to transform them. 
Now, if you're here and, and, and that's all you could do to show up to church um, and you just want to sit in the back and, and you, don't, you don't want to talk to anyone, that is okay. In fact, that is a very important first step. Take as long as you need. But I want you to know that there is so much more for you here than this. This is just a tiny taste of what God has for you. Change happens in the context of community. And we become a product of our community. That's why it's so important that we are deeply invested in a community of grace so that we can become people of grace. So what are the barriers? What keeps us from being that kind of community? Well, one is to not seek it or to jump in or, or to kind of keep a distance from it, not to engage it. But the other is to start fighting once you're in it. James says in James 1 or 4, 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he tells us the answer in verse two. You want something, but you don't get it. And the Greek word for want is the word hedone, which we get the word hedonism, hedonism from. James is saying that you and I, that we fight because we want to please ourselves, because we desire a life of self-pleasing. We, we are people who want our comfort and our convenience and our sense of control, and that's more important than anyone else's. Um, Y'all, I'm on a diet, and I wasn't going to tell you about it because the last time I shared with you about being on a diet, I was starting the Whole30, and shortly after I shared that, I went off the Whole30. Um, so I was like, I was not going to talk about it at all from up here, but, um, but it's a good illustration, so I'm going to do it. Um, but my motivation for a diet this, scratch that, my motivation for a healthy lifestyle um, is, uh, is, is a little bit different than it's ever been. It's, it's about my kids. Um, now, my three older kids, I'm pretty sure unless tragedy strikes, I will make it till their graduation. But it hit me recently that I've got a two-year-old also and a nine-month-old and, and a diet of tasty cakes and french fries and gallons of Dr. Pepper, I think, was leading me to a death that was faster than they'll be able to get through school. And so for that reason, I decided, I'm not diet. I'm going to choose a healthy lifestyle. And um, recently I was in Tennessee for a family reunion. And while I was there, I thought, you know, I'm going to cheat. And if I'm going to cheat, I'm going to cheat. We were in Pigeon Forge, and in Pigeon Forge, there is a Paula Deen restaurant. And I, I know, I know, it's the only restaurant in America where you can get butter as an entree. And so I went uh, to Paula Deen, and I want to relive that, that moment with you. And so I, I've brought some pictures. Um, but before I show you the pictures, I want you to just get a sense of this restaurant. Restaurant's two stories, but the bottom floor is, is the store. It's where you can buy Paula Deen butter and all the accessories. And then the second floor is where the dining room is. And y'all, you don't even have to walk upstairs to get to the dining room because they have an escalator. So, I mean, I knew I was cheating right. I don't have to expend even a little bit of calories before I stuff that fried chicken in my mouth. So I'm up the escalator, get to, get to the table, and, uh, and the first thing they bring out are the biscuits, um, which, as you can see here, uh, the biscuits are served on top of cornbread pancakes, and it was delicious. Uh, and then second, we had an appetizer which I don't even like fried okra, but y'all, this was like having dessert before your meal. And that sauce rivals Kobe's white sauce. I mean, it was like, I could just like, just eat the sauce alone. And then finally, there's our meal. All right, so it was family style, which meant we all had to share. 
But y'all, it was unlimited. They would bring it out as much as you want. Uh, and to top it off, as you can see there, it's on a lazy Susan. So you don't even have to like stretch to get food. You just, I mean, that's it, all right? And so, um, so I spent the next two hours thinking about nothing but myself. I was not thinking about little Hugs graduation or Prin, walking Prin down the aisle. It was all about me, what I wanted, pleasing myself. The 19th century writer George MacDonald said, the one principle of hell is I am my own. I am my own. So sitting at that table in Paula Deen's restaurant, I was in hell and I was loving every caloric moment of it. On the way home from the Tennessee trip, I listened to C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which I had never read, and, and I loved it. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. But it's a fictional story about the afterlife. And, and the point that C.S. Lewis makes over and over again is this. Heaven is for anyone who wants it. But how often we want hell, because in hell we keep our independence. We stay in control. Hell is just giving us what we most want. Hell is declaring, I am my own. There's a quote in the book that says it so brilliantly. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in these words. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. The book begins at a bus stop in a, in a place called Greytown. And Greytown is a town that stretches beyond infinity. Because the longer someone is there, the more they seek independence from all others. So people are setting up homes millions of miles away from each other. It is the loneliest town that ever was. That was C.S. Lewis's description of hell. And one of the main ways, one of the main barriers that you and I don't experience a community of grace is because we don't want it. We would rather hell. How often do you choose hell? How often do you say, I am my own? There's two ways to live. And, I, and I'm stealing this from a Vernon Rainwater over at Northland. I, I heard it from him. But he says there's two ways people live. They either live, here I, here I am, or there you are. We have a hundred opportunities every day to either say, here I am, or there you are. I love going to high school plays um, because I love watching high school actors. And unless they have a really good director, every high school actor acts exactly the same way. It's the same. They have the same impulse. And their impulse is to, is to emphasize the personal pronouns. So if their line is something like, um, I'll be right back, I've got to go to the store, they would perform it like, I will be back, I've got to go to the store. Or, or if they say, why are you blaming me? I'm the victim here. They would say, why are you blaming me? I am the victim here. You know, so, and it's like that. Next time you go to high school play, listen, they will do it. And that's because their impulse is here I am. How often do we become like high school actors in our places of work or in, on dates or in our family? How often do we place the emphasis on personal pronouns? And yet life comes from saying there you are. But saying there you are is really hard and difficult because that always involves a death. If you help someone get something done, there's a death to your time and your agenda. 
It's a death to your privilege if you let someone else cut you in line. When you see an irritating person coming towards you and, and instead of trying to avoid them, you sit down and patiently and sympathetically try to listen to them, there's a death that's being experienced. When you forgive, it's a, it's a death to your desire to get payback. When you volunteer your precious time, when you're on a team and you don't insist on things going your way, these are all little deaths that you and I encounter on a daily basis. But these deaths, when they come, because we say, there you are, lead to life. Death to our wants leads to the resurrection of a community of grace. No child has ever received life without their mother saying, there you are. Without a mother laying down her life for several months in the bearing of that child and the nursing of that child, without the mother constantly looking at her child, exhaustedly saying, there you are. And even beyond that, there are people in that child's life that sacrifice for them and, 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 call, and help them in their training and providing for them, like a constant death. You and I are only here because people in hundreds of different ways said to us, there you are. And this becomes so clear when we look at bad parents. Bad parents show us how important this is. If you grew up with a parent who constantly said, here I am, you know hell. You have lived it. I know that I'm here because of my parents because of my brother-in-law, Nick, because of my teacher, Mr. Cullen, because of my mentor, Steve Brown, because of my wife, Kelly, saying over and over and over again, there you are. Who said that in your life? Who in your life has looked at you and said, there you are? Might be worth thinking through that this week and making a phone call to say thank you. Because when we realize the little deaths that others have endured so that we might have life, and when we say thank you, that's the moment that a community of grace is formed. When we say thank you, we are surrendering a bit of our independence because thank you implies an indebtedness. So what keeps us from experiencing or becoming a community of grace is refusing to see the way others have laid down their lives for us and instead to continue to insist on what we want, on us being in control, on holding on to our independence, on declaring, I am my own. In heaven, everybody loses their independence. So how, how do we build it? How do we build a community of grace? Well, it's all about humility. And if you want to know more about that, uh, on family night coming up on July 21st, we're doing our Hamilton parody called Humility, a first century musical. You should all come out to family night. It's going to be a lot of fun. But that's the key. It is all about humility. Verse six says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And then again in verse 10, he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So what does humility look like? Last week, we looked at humility in relation to God. And we heard that humility is an, is an acknowledgement that none of us are good enough to be good enough for God. But what does humility look like for each other in community? Well, Jonathan Edwards was um, preaching during two, maybe even three great revivals that happened in this country. And this, this was times when the church was exploding and people's lives were being changed and whole communities were being changed. 
But you know what stopped the revivals? <clears throat> Fighting amongst Christians. And so Edwards wrote a book titled On Revival in which he described what he witnessed, how these revivals came to a sudden halt. And he said it was all about pride. So I want, I want to go through the six marks of pride uh, to kind of wrap us up, um, to look at and see how we're doing to look at the six marks of pride so we can also see the opposite marks of humility. So first, pride makes you more aware of others' faults than your own. But humility makes you more aware of your own sin. That's why James says in 4.9, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Second, pride leads you, when you speak of others' thoughts or faults, to have an air of contempt or disdain. But humility means whenever you speak of another's faults, which is rare, you do so with an air of grief and mercy. Third, pride leads you to quickly separate yourself from people who criticize you or that you've criticized. You are cold to people who disagree with you. But humility means you stick with people. That, that even difficult relationships you don't give up on. Fourth, a proud person is dogmatic, and they're sure about every point of belief. They cannot distinguish between major and minor issues of belief because they're all major to them. But humility dies on very few hills. Fifth, a proud person loves to confront because they love to win, or they never confront because they don't like to be criticized. So essentially, if you love to confront or you never confront, those are both marks of pride but a humble person confronts when it's necessary. And really, those last four are all what James is talking about in those, in those last verses we read in, in chapter four, verses 11 and 12 about, about judging one another. And then sixth, a proud person is often unhappy or feels sorry for himself or herself. Proud people are filled with self-pity because they know how the world's supposed to go. And they believe that because of how they live, life should go the way it ought. They feel owed a good life. Why do they feel that way? Why do we feel that way? Is that, a, is that something that we've learned from, from God and his word? No, that's what the world tells us. The world tells us it's all about karma. But James says in chapter four, verse four, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See, a humble person knows it's not about karma. It's all about grace. That everything that you and I receive, we didn't earn. It is undeserved. It is a gift. So how'd you do? My guess is some of you are very proud of how humble you are and good, good for you for being able to check off a few of those. But, but we, all, we all know we, we, we don't do that perfectly. Even the most humble of us don't do it perfectly. We aren't people who are slow to speak to others' faults. We struggle with being kind and merciful. We struggle to feel pain for the brokenness of others. We, we have a hard time sticking with people through hard times, and we, we want to give up a lot of times. We struggle to, to not hold on to dogma and to be flexible. We're afraid of confronting one another. But listen, if a humble person confronts someone, it's persuasive. Because a humble person isn't out to win, they're out to heal. 
They don't enjoy uh, grumbling or complaining. They aren't self-pitying. Wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of a group of people like that? That really sounds a whole lot like Jesus. Jesus is true righteousness. He is the ultimate one who disadvantaged himself for the sake of us. Right after James tells us to humble ourselves, um, he says, resist the devil. And whenever I think about that in terms of Jesus, when I think about him resisting the devil, I always go uh, to the moment after Jesus' baptism when he's led into the wilderness and we're told he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. But y'all, Jesus' whole life was resisting the devil. Jesus died a thousand deaths before he ever went to the cross. And you know, every time, every time, you know the devil was saying to him, you don't have to do this. Like, really? Are you going to keep serving them? Are going to keep healing them? You're not going to get a thank you. If you keep loving them, if, if you keep empowering them, if you keep inviting them in, they're going to kill you. And we did. James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. Jesus not only died the death that we deserve, but Jesus died the thousands of deaths in life that you and I are called to die for other people. Why? So that when we try, when we try to approach God, he gives us more grace. When we imperfectly try to humble ourselves, he gives us more grace. When we try to resist the devil imperfectly, he gives us more grace. On the cross, just like every other day of his life, Jesus saw us and said, there you are. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that in Jesus we have one uh, who disadvantaged himself for us. Father, I pray that as we look at the beauty that is our Savior, that our hearts would be changed. And, and Father, bring us into a community that, that encourages that, where we can live out the way of Jesus, that we can truly become a Christ-centered community. And Father, you know each person in this room. You know the people who feel isolated. You know the people who are choosing to be isolated. I, Father, I pray that you would open up doors for them to move towards community in a way that brings life. Father, make us a safe community that brings life. That when the world looks at it, they see grace. They see you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.